I'm pretty realistic, I think, with my running, and I do believe in myself. I think that's how I ever ran 210 in the marathon. But I also see when the running's on the wall and just taking a fairly conservative pace and yet my legs still like fell out from underneath me that I thought, okay, I hope I can go further at Western States. That was Reed Coolset, and this is episode 100 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. It's hard to believe we're already publishing our 100th episode of Inspired Souls, and we couldn't think of a better guest to celebrate with than Reed Coolset. Since the early 2000s, Reed has been representing Canada at the highest level on the track and roads, and over the past year, he's been making a name for himself in the trail and ultra world as well. At the end of June, Reed completed the prestigious Western States Endurance Run as his first 100 miler. We dig into all the details, including how he was able to bypass the lottery, what his preparation looked like, how his pacers were able to help him go 45 kilometers longer than he ever had before, areas he's identified for improvement, and what ultras he plans to tackle next. This conversation wouldn't have been complete without touching on Reed's incredible road running career, which included running 210 in the marathon three times and representing Canada at two Olympic Games and numerous world championships from the 5K to cross country to the marathon. We had a fascinating discussion on talent since Reed wasn't necessarily someone you would have described as naturally gifted in high school or even the early part of his years at the University of Guelph. We think this showcases how there is more than one way to the top and provides hope to the average runner who is willing to put their head down and work hard for years. There is no doubt in our minds that Reed's private coaching clients benefit tremendously from his example. We think it's safe to say that Reed can also take some of the credit for the unbelievable depth we're seeing today in Canadian men's marathoning, and it will be exciting to follow along with his next adventures on the trails. And now on to our 100th episode with Reed Coolset. All right, well, we couldn't think of a better guest to help celebrate our 100th episode than elite road and trail runner Reed Coolset. Thanks for joining us today, Reed. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, when I started to think about this podcast, it's hard to even know where to begin with you because you've had such a long career and accomplished so much. But how about we start with your most recent adventure, which took place a little over three weeks ago at Western States. Now, you only started trail running seriously, I believe, over the past year, and this was your very first 100 miler. So first, maybe tell us how the opportunity came up for you to take part in this prestigious and very popular trail race. Yeah, yeah. It's actually kind of an interesting story. So Western States has obviously been on my radar for a long time, just with people I know who have run it over the years. And I think I always kind of wanted to run it, but I didn't really know how that would happen. And then I ran my first ultra last August. So August, 2021, it was a 110K race and I won that and I decided I really liked it. So I had a couple more races on the schedule, but before I even did my second one, I was driving with a friend, Paul Treblecock, who had done a TV show with this other guy, Simon Donato, um, called Boundless. And we were driving to uh, Killarney to do a, a trail run. And Paul was talking to Simon and saying, yeah, Reed's, uh, Reed's getting a trail running. He won his first ultra. It was 110K. And Simon, who owns Stoked Oats, 
was saying to Paul, you know, we're trying to sponsor Western States. And if we do so, we'll have a sponsored spot to give to an athlete. Would Reed want it? And I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so this is just after my first ultra. Um, and, and because I had won it, I think I gave a false impression that maybe I was going to do a lot better. Um, <laughs> and, and QMT and the Quebec mega trail, the one that I did, it was fairly technical. So mm-hmm. I was looking forward to doing like a more runnable race. And yeah, so I had signed up already for Black Canyon, which is in February to take a shot at a, a golden ticket. But by the time um, late November rolled around, it was um, already confirmed that Stoked Oats was going to be the sponsor for Western States. And I was going to have, this this spot so i was just able to kind of not have to race um my lead-up races and and could just focus on trying to figure out how to do 100 milers well for our road running friends can you maybe break this down like i know because i've really stepped into this trail running world and <laughs> I've, gotten I've so into so it well. yes <laughs> yes but um normally what is the process for getting into western states and why is it such a big deal that you know you didn't have to qualify like the rest of us or go into the lottery <laughs> yeah so for yeah first off western states they can only allow 300 about 370 runners in um, I think this has to do with just being in a remote area and not having the capacity to have a ton of cars and washrooms and, and all that, right? So trail races are often limited, not like road races where you can have tens and thousands of people um, in the city. And so the, there's already a limited uh, spot. And then there are uh, elite spots. So the top 10 from the year before get automatically invited back. And then there's probably, I should know this, but I think about eight races that are golden ticket races. And Usually it's the top two who accept the golden tickets will get entry to Western States. And there are a few other spots that, that, that are given out, like it maybe if you're in the race director, but there's sponsored spots. East Station, well. um, yeah. East Station volunteers can sponsor a spot or captains, I should say. Yeah, there's some quirky ways to get in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, this, and, then, yeah. and then, you know, the sponsors have a spot to give as well. So the rest of... The people trying to get in and get in with like try to get into the lottery, which I had a ticket for my finish at QMT. So I had applied for the lottery. My spot was confirmed before the lottery happened, so they took my name out. But going into the lottery, I was looking that there was about thirty thousand tickets, and I had one of them. So oh, yeah. <laughs> chances were yeah. slim. <laughs> and I think the way it works is the first year you apply, you get one ticket. The second year, you apply, you get two. But then after that, it doubles. So third would be four tickets fourth year would be eight and then yeah. 16, 32. So usually by the time oh. you have 64, 120 tickets, your, your chances of getting there are obviously much better. And that's why there's 30,000 tickets, right? So there's not 30,000 people. Like eight, Got nine it. years for people to get in now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's and actually the day before the race, there was also like this, like you can buy just raffle tickets and like they like, yeah. you know, raffled it off. And I didn't really know what was <laughs> happening, but it was like right after the press conference, these Somebody was just going nuts. Uh, and I asked my, my friend, like, what, what's, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, that, they just got into Western States next year. Like just from like, you know, day of right there raffle. So that was, that was really cool. Yeah. So this is, this is pretty awesome that you, you had, now correct me if I'm wrong, Simon Donato, Stoked Oats. That's a Canadian sponsor, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Canadian out, yeah, company. They're, yeah. They're out of Calgary and they just um, recently um, expanded to the States. So I think they're at Costco in a, in a few different states, like California being one of them where the race is. Yeah. So now that they're in the States, they, you know, they wanted to 
kind of get their name out there. And Simon's a ultra runner himself. So he's, he's been around West. He hasn't done it before, but he's been around. So um, he knows the, uh, the course and everything. That's super Okay. Cool. So uh, according to your social media, I think I got this off your social media, this race was 45 kilometers longer than you'd ever gone before. Is that accurate? <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. So um, I, at QMT, I got lost, which it, mm-hmm. they call, it's called QMT 110, but most, most people were like 105K on their GPS. But I added an extra 10K um, early on in the race. So I was 115K. Um, okay. Just because 110 isn't hard enough, you had to go a little extra. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah def, definitely a rookie mistake there. But um, and uh, yeah, between QMT and Western States, I never ran longer than 115k. Okay, okay, but you ended up finishing 17th male, uh, 25th overall in 19 hours and 27 minutes, and. I loved what you wrote in one of your post-race recaps. Uh, you said there are easier ways to get a belt buckle, but damn, that was worth it. <laughs> so maybe you can expand on that. Tell us what you meant by that. I mean, obviously this is not an easy race. hundred miles is never easy. It's never guaranteed. It's, it, there were so many unknowns probably for you. Um, but overall you said you're, you're glad you did it. So let's talk about that first. Yeah, it definitely was an amazing experience. Like, as, as tough as it got towards the end, I was still really, I was just happy to be there and and just really liked the challenge of it. Um, even though on one 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 coin it was it wasn't fun at all. <laughs> like, it's not total be, type two fun. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like not being able to not being able to run is is to me is not fun. <laughs> just because yeah. my legs are so smashed, right? And I think that's the dirty little secret in ultra running and especially hundred milers is that there is, there are periods of trekking and hiking and, and people don't always realize that, but yeah, at the end, it can be really frustrating when you can't just open up the way you'd like to because of something. So, okay, let's, let's go there a little bit. The last 20 miles, the last 10 miles, like, how were you feeling? Your legs had never been there before. Did you, did your feet feel like hamburger? Did you have blisters? Did you still have quads? Like what, what was, what was governing you, but what was also still good? You know what? There's a lot of things actually went better than I thought. So my feet, okay. my feet were fine, which, uh, yeah, I was, I guess, surprised at. And, um, in general, my stomach was pretty good. Like I, you know, there's a okay. few periods where like, like I kind of threw up at once, like nothing really came up, but you know, I kind of had to stop and throw up, but nothing was coming there. Um, yeah, yeah I was going, you know, I was going to the bathroom a few times, so I was hydrated and, uh, most of the food I was taking in, like, there was a few things I had laid out at the aid stations that when I got there, I was like, why? Like, I'm not going to eat that at all. You know, like, like race days, you're just like, wow, that's not appetizing at all. But I was just kept on going for bananas. Um, they were going down. So a lot of that kind of stuff, like my pacing, I think went, went really well. So a lot of the just race strategy went well. And I think a lot of that is just because I listened to Glenn Redpath and Rob Carr. Um, they yeah. gave me a lot of good pointers and Rob's run it three times and Glenn's run it six times and crewed there or no paced another five times and crewed more times. So they have a lot of experience. And so a lot of mistakes they, they made, they kind of told me, so it's pacing, obviously a massive one. We so used to go way too hard in, in a race of that, of that duration. But yeah, by the time I got to 125 K I was, I wasn't moving that well anymore. 
Um, the first 80K, I was, very, I was still very optimistic about just keep like maintaining that sort of effort and maybe picking people off. But by the time I got to 100K, I didn't really think I was picking many people off, but I thought, I was like, you know, I'll, I'll just keep kind of, you know, trucking along. And by about 125K, it was like, yeah, I'm not, not really moving that well at all anymore. I was also getting information from my crew that as far as the men's field was concerned, like there really wasn't going to be anybody catching me and I wasn't going to really catch anybody else. Like there wasn't really many people around me. There was very little movement. So especially in the last um, like 15 K. That can be demotivating though, can't it? Like if you're in a marathon, say, and you're like stuck out in no man's land, you're not with a pack that, and, and there's no one realistically that you can chase down. You, you sort of like lose focus a little bit. Is it the same in trail running? I think so. Um, I think if there, if, if I had a, a, like an exciting goal that was on the line, I think I could have pushed harder, but just given how tired my legs were and it was dark and mm-hmm. I just thought, you know what, if I'm running and I, I, I twist my ankle, I didn't feel like I had the, the reflexes anymore or the strength to maybe like, like correct it. Like I would have early on, like, you know, I, yeah. I went over a rock a couple of times early on and just, you kind of bounce, you know, pull it back and you're, you're steady. And I didn't really feel that steady. And I just thought, how much do I want to risk for com- basically coming in the same place? You know? Yeah. So yeah. there's, there's those kind of thoughts too. And, and just, it, and just the reality, it hurt a ton um, to just to move. And I'm like, well, what, like, why, why hurt this much? Why don't I just walk it in, you know? And it was, and I was, I don't know. I, I don't, I mean, I don't think I could have gone much faster at all, but I'm sure I could have, you know, dug a bit deeper, but, but, you know, it was what it was. I was, I was, I was just kind of yeah, enjoying, enjoying at that point and getting to the finish. Yeah, I, totally. I think I, I mean, I really thought I could finish top 20, um, like in the men's, on the men's field, which I did. And I thought yeah. top 10, like when I looked at the start list, I didn't think top 10 was really possible, but I knew in these kind of races, if you just keep going, if you can just keep going and other people blow up that, mm-hmm. you know, you can sneak mm-hmm. into the top 10. And that Absolutely. was, that would, I guess was my hope, but I didn't really expect it. And later in the race by about hundred K, it was like, uh, that's, that's probably not going to happen, but you know, that, whatever, that's fine. I'm still, I'm still having fun. <laughs> well, you still maintained your placing very well throughout the race. So, you know, I was, I'm very impressed for somebody with no hundred mile experience that you paced so well, because I've only done two hundreds, but you have no, you can't even comprehend how far it is until your feet have actually traveled that distance. And I'll add for somebody, um, like that can run, like if you're running a marathon, you're running like three minutes to three ten per kilometer. Right. So like for someone that can run so fast to actually hold back and, and go slower has got to be challenging. It, it is it, like to hold back in the beginning is, is a big challenge. The, the, the pace just feels so easy, but yeah. I just, yeah. I, I just knew from my other ultras that that same pace becomes very hard. And mm-hmm. even, even, <laughs> even you can't, I can't even, you know, keep that pace up. It is weird at the end. Like I was joking with Jordan. He was my second pacer. I was saying like, yeah, I was knocking off 420 per half K, you know, like, <laughs> like you never, you know, you never measure pace in half K, but like that's how yeah, slow it yeah. is. It was like eight, 840 per K, right? We're like, keep knocking off these 420s. Because um, that sounded more like in the realm of a pace yeah. that I would run, you know? 
Um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, we were, we were having fun just kind of laughing at my inability to run. So you, um, on another podcast, I heard you, you know, talking about how you're, uh, after you ran um, GMT, that your dream ultra marathons were like Western States, Hard Rock, Leadville, some of the big UTMB, some of the big mountain races. I'm wondering now, now that you've done States, are they still on your radar? Are you, are you going to pursue some of these big mountain races or are you thinking that um, you might be changing your plans? Oh, definitely changing my plans. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I have just so much, so much more to learn with a race like Western States that to, to go to like something like Hard Rock or UTMB would be way over my head um, at this point, and probably forever. <laughs> but um, I, I do want to do another hundred miler. Um, not that it was, it, it was never offered to me, but I just told Simon at, you know, Stoke Dotes that I don't want a sponsored spot for 2023, <laughs> um, that I need to just take my time and, and do some shorter ultras, mm-hmm. um, get, get more comfortable and, and, and improve at, um, like my, my, I would say quote unquote mountain running skills. But when, you know, when I think of mountain running, I, I still think of Western States as a mountain course even though compared to hard rock or utmb where the course records are like seven hours longer like th- those are like the real ones right like the, with a lot more elevation and, and steep pitches yeah, yeah and, and deal a bit more altitude but um altitude that i wouldn't shy away from the terrain the, the really technical terrain I'm, I'm shying away from so leadville yeah. would be a race that would um interest me yeah more runnable. Uh, yeah. Just to get that elevation in uh, Hamilton, that's a lot of like trips up and down the escarpment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, uh, the escarpment is all of about hundred, 120 meters high. Yeah. So that's about as much as I can get in a, a, at one go. Well, it's mm-hmm. better than, than um, Spring Hill in Winnipeg where the flood weighs 120 <laughs> feet and there yeah. you've got to do, you know, 30 to a hundred repeats to get a good workout. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, there, and there's a lot of places in Southern Ontario that are way flatter than Hamilton. Mm-hmm. People, people yeah. will come to Hamilton to, to run Sulphur Springs and, and run the escarpment. Yeah. So I like, yeah, as flat as this area is compared to where a lot of, you know, I would say my competitors for Western States are training. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's pretty good around here. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about your pacers a little bit? So, you know, I know we've talked a bit about the job of a pacer in a road race. Um, we actually did a whole episode on Carolyn's brother pacing <laughs> her um, at a 10K race. So, you know, Reed, you used yeah. to run with Kevin, didn't you, sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, Kevin and I were quite competitive in university. Oh, um, cool. He ran for Waterloo. I ran for Guelph. And yeah. Yes, we, uh, that's we awesome. Had some, we had some hard-fought battles. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. And then you got super fast. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah but, but so basically, you know, pacing a 10K is an entirely different thing than pacing a hundred milers. So, you know, how did you approach having a pacer? What did you ask of your pacers? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, how did, how did that work for you? Yeah. So my two pacers, um, my first one was Cal Neff. Um, I met Cal, I think in the 2011 Canadian half marathon champs. Yeah. We roomed together. And we kind of just stayed in touch over the years, see him here and there. And he is sponsored by Ultra. They had um, their like athlete summit the week leading up to Western States. So he kind of reached out to me and said, "Hey, if you need a pacer, I'm already I'm already here." Which and that that sounded really good to me because um, I really didn't want to bring a pacer like 
and have them travel all the way and maybe I don't even make that spot, you know, like I get to Forest Hill and my pacer's waiting <laughs> and I say, and that's a hundred K into the race for people who don't know and I get there and like drop out yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, thanks for coming all the way. Um, so that was, that was good. That was, that was an easy call. Uh, somebody I knew who was already there. And then the other pacer was Jordan Birma, who's a good friend of mine from Hamilton. And he's, he also coaches with me and he wanted to see Western States and his wife is a, a photographer. So they kind of lined up some other things after the race. So it wasn't just about Western States. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and that, and that went well too. And I had Jordan second on purpose cause I kind of warned him. I was like, it's like, yeah, it might, you, you know, it might be coming up to California for a 30 K hike. And, um, <laughs> and, and I've told the story to a few people and I, and I, and I'll say it like, I know it sounds like a preconceived notion that, you know, if I'm saying that I don't have like the confidence or, you know, if, if I say it's going to go bad, it's going to go bad type of thing. Um, but yeah. I, I'm pretty realistic, I think, with my running, and I do believe in myself. I think that's how I ever ran 210 in the marathon. But I also see when the running's on the wall, and just the way my ultras had gone this particular, like in this year with Black Canyon and then Canyon's endurance run, just taking a fairly conservative pace, and yet my legs still like fell out from underneath me. That I I thought, okay, I'm like, I hope I can go further at Western States, but to get to 160 is going to be a big jump. And it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You need to respect the distance. And it sounds like you you're doing that. Um, you know, I've, it can take years. At, um, who was it that said it can take, um, Dave Proctor says it takes seven to 10 years <laughs> for a person to truly get ultra legs, like just to build that durability in, in, in their physiology and in their tendons and in their bones and everything. And mm. not to mention the experience, um, of running, mind you, you have loads of experience in running and in other distances, which I'm sure we'll get into in a mm. little bit. But I think it's pretty yeah. wise of you because, you know, in road running, which it was what you did for most of, of your life, right? Like you come up and you, yeah. you do the track and you develop the yeah. speed and there's developmental steps, yes. I guess is what I'm saying. And so, for you to start with 110 and then do the Black Canyons and Canyons Endurance and, you know, those are like, you know, in line with the developmental steps. And then to go to Western States was like this huge jump. And now you're realizing, okay, wait a second, I need to go back and sort of like fill in these other areas and skill sets that I don't yet have. I think that's pretty wise of you to recognize and um, have the confidence to do because like, again, it could be tempting to just, okay, I did Western States and now check, 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 check all these other ones, right? UTMB and all, and all the rest. But you're saying, no, 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 I think I can see that there might be some value in going backwards, which isn't really backwards. But do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, the, the way I felt at the end of Western States, it, it's not really that tempting to go to <laughs> 100 miles uh, right away. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've always had this idea that I would get into ultras. Um, like hmm. just even for like the last 20 years, I, I, it's something I've always wanted to do. I've always liked trail running. I didn't really understand how technical trail running could be. Um, I would run around Sulphur Springs and it's, you know, it's just rolling trails and it's, it's where I like to run, but it's, you know, it's not really like, you know, mountain trail running at all. Um, but I thought I would do something like JFK, like do some 50 Ks, do JFK. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, for QMT, the Quebec mega trail last August, I actually went, 
I tried to sign up for a shorter distance. Um, but the race was sold out at the time. So I was on a wait list and Jordan, the, who I was just talking about my pacer, um, he was going to do the 110 and I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll sign up for a shorter race. We'll train together. But they had postponed the race because of COVID and Jordan couldn't make the new date. So he wanted to get rid of his 110 bib. So that's how I ended up at 110 <laughs> with, okay. with a qualifying race for Western States. Right. Um, yeah. So if it was, if it wasn't for the, the race being postponed and I could just have gotten in, I you know probably would have done the 50 K <laughs> and then probably, okay. and then because I won QMT, I also won the race to go to the grand raid where I could, mm. I could have, I could have chosen the, the 70k, the 105k, or the 100 miler there, but looking at the course profile, I, I I chose the the 70k, which was good because it was super technical, and but that that's kind of just it was just kind of like this weird um, turn of events that led me to to run at 110k, win it, and then end up you know looking to do Western States less than a year into my ultras, so. <laughs> so yeah, now I'm now I'm going back to plan A, which is uh, my next race will be a 50k, and then Working the on the and then hopefully yeah. uh, maybe do JFK later in the year. So okay. yeah, okay. little detour. You're taking, you're taking the reins again on the yeah your, yeah, uh, yeah yeah yeah. Your race so, planning. <laughs> yeah, things just got out of hand, and now I'm right. going back to plan A. Got it. Okay. Well, I mean, we could talk about Western States probably for the whole the whole episode, but we wanted to touch on a few other things. And I found it particularly fascinating that about two weeks after you finished Western States, you ran a mile, the uh, first annual Bayfront Endurance Mile, and you cranked out a 433 in the mile when on paper, you would still be actually recovering from Western States. So did that surprise you that you could turn around and and, and switch gears like that? Yeah, it did. So yeah, Bayfront Endurance <laughs> is this group that I coach. And as people were kind of getting their the season done with, like a lot of people were running 5Ks and 10Ks in June, and a lot of people are now training for the half marathon and marathon, I thought we'd put on a mile. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't really have intentions of r- racing it, um, but recovery <laughs> from Western States went really well. So I ended up jumping in myself. And going going into it, I honestly thought, going under 450 would be really tough. I didn't, I didn't hit lap on my watch or I I should say my screen wasn't set up to even see what I was running. So I just kind of ran with, um, with the, with the leaders and kicked at the end. And yeah, I was surprised that I had no clue what my pace was and I ran 433. And then afterwards I was kind of comparing it to what I had done before. And I thought, man, this is so slow, but you know, right before the race, I knew that like, you know, 433 would be really fast considering, you know, after, after Western States, I didn't do anything for 10 days, um, Mm -hmm. complete rest. And then just had a few easy bikes and runs. So yeah, I was, I was really surprised, um, and happy and, right after the race, I'm like, man, I should be doing more of this stuff. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask. Like you, you said again on social media, it cracked me up. Almost makes me want to move back to the shorter stuff. Almost. <laughs> so, uh, compare and contrast as somebody who I know you were never like a miler per se, but like 433 mile is moving. Like, I, I don't know what your best mile ever was, but probably low, low four minutes, or maybe you cracked four, but that's a very different kind of hurt than going for a hundred miles. So uh, we always love to ask people that do have their feet in both worlds, like what's harder? 
There's many different kinds of hard. Which one do you yeah. prefer? <laughs> well, obviously, just to finish, it's way harder to do the, the hundred mile. Um, I mean, for for me, the, the hundred mile was way harder just because it was mm-hmm. it was something completely new for me. Whereas the pain and and how you would push through something like a mile is something that when I was training for the marathon, I might do a workout five times a mile and average 420 or 422 or something like that. So it's just Mm -hmm. something I'm so familiar with versus yeah, running 45 K longer than I ever have on, you know, a a net downhill and then you add in the heat and then, you know, dealing with fueling and, and, and everything. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's really hard to say. It is hard. And, and you really have to look at like, really just how hard you're going to, you're going to, you know, press yourself. And yeah, that's, that's where it's hard to kind of quantify which one's harder. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, I'm, again, I don't know anything about training for an ultra. So how do you think about where speed work fits into the picture as an ultra endurance athlete? Is it something you do or is speed work like mile repeats? (laughs) Yeah, well, speed work would be like mile repeats, uh, okay. honestly, yeah. and I think um, I think it's very important for a few reasons. So one, you want to just be fit, right, going into a hundred miler, and that will help you just you know maintain a certain pace, and you won't be burning as hot, so you can you know run a bit cooler. If you're fit, it's, it's going to help you no matter what. And the other thing too is you can't really you're not going to run yourself into the ground by running huge, huge distances that often when you're training for ultras. So I think it's good to be acquainted with her, (laughs) like, you know, kind of touch on that. So, you know, you can try to be comfortable being uncomfortable, even though the pace is, you know, completely different. And Mm -hmm. I would, I would say towards the end of a ultra training block, you, you wouldn't necessarily need to do that kind of fitness work because hopefully you're already you've done it already and you can get more specific, but, um, I'm sure, I'm sure it helps at at, at some points in the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, um, you know, what strategy you used in your training for, you know, well, we could say for all of your ultras, but primarily for states, did you, did you go on the kind of the time and vert kind of philosophy or did you go with a mileage goals? Were you coaching yourself or were you self, or did you have a coach? I'm just curious what kind of philosophy you took there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm self coach, but I try to get advice <laughs> from a few people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, there, there's a few things that I would do differently, but I think one of the things is that I already had, I already had decent speed, right. For, mm-hmm. for that Same race, stuff. I would say like, I don't, <laughs> you know, if you raced, if you lined up, you know, everybody who finished ahead of me and we raced a mile, I'm not going to get my doors blown off. Right. Um, I know like guys like Hayden Hawks and Adam Peterman are really fast too, but they're, they're not complete. Like they're five hours ahead of me or something, four hours ahead of me in, in Western States. Right. They're, they're, you know, not the same percentage ahead of me in, in these shorter races. So I kind of felt that was already my strength and I had a lot of weaknesses. So I did kind of do the, try to get more volume and more vert and just get my body adapted. Mm-hmm. One of these things that I don't think really worked is I would kind of think of like wax on, wax off, like just run the trails all the time. And like, just the more time I'm in the trails, like I'll just get better and better at, you know, moving faster and moving faster down hills. But I think that didn't work whenever I found myself at Western States running um, like a fairly runnable downhill. I just resorted to this sort of like very relaxed running. And then somebody would come by me and like they'd be flying by me 
and then I could stay with him. And mm. every time that happened, I'm like, why wasn't I just running this pace earlier? Like I'm just giving up minutes, right? So I think I had to be, I think I have to be a bit more intentional and, and mindful on my downhill running day to day and just kind of let myself go and, and, and kind of go with the flow rather than being more conservative with it. I need, I know I need a lot more longer days too, but five hours still seems really long to me. So to do a five hour outing was, was, was a lot, but it's something that, you know, I have built up now and now I have a few ultras under my belt. And so from now until, you know, my next, next time I'll do a hundred K or, or longer, I definitely want to get those longer days in where Mm -hmm. when I looked at, say, say, say Western States and I'm, 10 hours into the race, I'm kind of thinking like, I've only done this like three times, you know, in my life. <laughs> well, this is what I was curious about. Like somebody who can run a 210 marathon to get time on feet, you might be doing some ridiculous mileage. Like for me, a five hour run is, is not that much mileage, but for you, you know, there's a balance between beating yourself up too much, like just actually running too many miles to get that time on feet. Um, so yeah, I was just curious how you approach that. Yeah. Well, I, I had heard that in another podcast I was listening to you listening to with you in that like you wouldn't be it wouldn't be uncommon for you to go out and run like 130 mile weeks when you were a marathoner right and so now the big difference is that those 130 miles takes you so much longer to cover when you add in elevation and uh, technical technical terrain right so can you maybe speak to that a little bit like what would be the difference of time on feet to cover your weekly mileage yeah, so I don't I don't run as many kilometers as I did before. That's so interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, but the but the time on feet is very similar, right? right? So I I used to because everything was so constant before on the roads and and the trails I ran on I could use I could use kilometers as um, my metric, but then as I got into trying to you know run up you know say fifteen hills and 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 doing some and doing some more technical trails that if I were to try to run 180 to 200 kilometers a week, it would take me another an extra three or four hours. So now I'm running quite a bit less, but still like in the, like a, like a normal week for me would be like 12, 13 hours. And a big week would be like 15 hours. And if I look back to when I was running over 200 K a week, it was, it was something similar. Like a big week would be 15 hours, but mm-hmm. my average pace was probably minute, minute and a half per K faster. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the other thing that I hear with ultra runners, and you've spoken to this already, like the races are just so grueling and you're out there for so long that the mental game really comes into it in such a different way than it would even in a marathon. Right. And so what kind of mental skills have you added to your toolbox? And on that note, if you had those mental skills developed when you were marathoning, do you think you could have broken 210, for example? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. And I, I, I kind of go back to, to just a bit of a tangent, but like some of the stuff that I have learned, like running down hills a bit better. I'm like, if I could have done that in Boston, <laughs> you know, right. could, could have helped me. Or now that I, I think my legs are a bit stronger, could that have helped my marathon? As far as mental skills, I think as I progressed through the 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon, it was it, the learning curve wasn't that steep, right? To go from one to the, like kind of bridge those mm-hmm. gaps, and then it went it went from the I mean the slowest marathon I, I ever competed at was the was the Boston Marathon when, when it was like raining and I 
I finished oh, ninth, but it was yeah, but it was in, oh, yeah. it was two hours and twenty five minutes, and even my, even my focus on that race was wasn't that good towards the end. So yeah, to go from that to my first ultra, which was fourteen hours, was it was yeah. But you don't need to you don't need to be as on right as a marathon where like a marathon. I think the first time I hit the Olympic standard, I, I hit it by six seconds, right? So you can't let wow. your mind wander and miss those six seconds. But in the ultra, you can come in, to, you know, you come into an aid station and you're, you're taking some time. You, you might even have to, mm-hmm. you know, show the officials what's in your pack to make sure you have mm-hmm. all the required gear. So there's a whole bunch of time in, a, in an ultra that's that, that you, you don't need to be as dialed in and focused mm-hmm. But at the same time, you need to be able to keep moving, which is incredibly hard. And, yeah. and, and so you, you almost have to dig deeper, but it's not the, the, it's the intensity of, of focus and the, the constant focus isn't the same. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm not the person to ask for mental strategies in, in, the, in, the, in the ultra yet. I'm still very much working on that and, and figuring yeah. that out and, um, seeing what works. And I, and I know that I know something that would, would help me or what does help me in, in, in ultras is when, when there are people around like competitors and, and I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm pushing. Right. So even at, at canyons, when I, I was, I kind of, it, was, it was always going to be a training run, but at around 95 K I was like, Oh, you know, that was, that was a great run. And there was snow and it was at the end and I was just kind of walking it in and then yeah, a couple couple guys were coming up, and then all of a sudden, I just started running a lot faster, um, and right. it, it, it right. just kind of like woke me back up. And it was really interesting seeing the women at Western States go by me at the end because I think, you know, Ail- when Ailsa went by me, she was probably like in third or fourth, and when Marianne Bedford or Hogan went by me, she was maybe like in fifth. But pretty much all the women, except for I think Ruth Ruth Croft, she passed me at Robinson flat and I don't think I ever saw her again but I think all the rest of the women were I was kind of like in 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 the mix there but in the last 30k just the focus that they had um and most of the time I got past an aid station so I would be like in an aid station sitting down and and I'd see them come in and just like boom boom like they're in and out and just like flying and I remember Camille Heron came by and like like they were just like just on it, right? Fighting for that, you know, whatever it was, like fifth place, sixth place, seventh place. And, mm-hmm. um, I, and I, I was kind of thinking, I'm like, man, I wonder if I was, if I, if I was on, a, you know, an, an exciting place like that, would I, you know, like how much more would I push and would that change my mental, my mental game? Which, I, like I said before, I don't think it would have changed much. My legs were done, but <laughs> it, it, it does, it does make a difference just to be engaged and, and still working on a goal that excites you. Hundred percent. Yeah, you know, aid stations. That's a whole other strategic game. I was just looking at the time spent in aid stations at Hard Rock this year, and I mean, most of the the top ten were like one minute, two minutes. You know, Courtney DeWalter. I think she had less than fifteen minutes. Maybe it was twelve minutes total stop time in the entire hundred miles in aid oh, stations. Wow. You know, it, and and then you move back to like fifth, sixth, seventh place. And it turns into 40 minutes, 43 minutes, 44 minutes. Like that's a significant thing to figure out. And sometimes if you don't stay long enough, it can cost you time because you don't take care of yourself. 
but right. there's always um, a few minutes you can shave off here or there. Okay, mm-hmm. so we have talked a lot about ultra. We've we've talked a little bit about your road running background. I think it's time we just take a pause <laughs> and do what we normally do at the beginning of an episode with somebody and let you just tell us a little bit more about who is Reed Coolset. Where do you mm-hmm. live? Tell us about what you're doing with your with your um, life outside of running now, and um, then maybe if you can just tell us what started your passion in running in the first place. Yeah, I live in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, I'm married with two children. My wife, Marie, is also a runner. Um, she will be training for the New York City Marathon this fall. And my mm. my son is about to turn six and my daughter is four. Um, yeah, so they keep me really busy. Um, it's, it's been an interesting transition from being a professional runner to uh, a professional, I guess I'm a coach, like is my, I'd say is my number one profession now and, and an ultra runner. And it all kind of came er, like through the pandemic. So I went from making money road racing in 2019 to not making anything really in 2020 when all the, when all the races were canceled. And that's when I started well, basically just advertising that I did coach. And then yeah, by the end of the last year I was, I was full, um, I was at capacity. So yeah, I'm, I'm busy coaching, um, busy with kids and trying to learn this new ultra thing. And yeah, I, I started running um, at the, it's called McMaster Sports Fitness School. It's a sports camp in the summer, um, which my son is actually now going to for the first time. How old were you when you first went to this camp? Uh, I think I was seven. Okay. Yeah. Cool. My son's six or he turns six soon. So I think they can go a little bit earlier than when I was a kid. Um but yeah, every day at lunch, we would run the trails. Um, and I discovered I liked running, like, like doing trail running. So when I got to middle school, like grade six, I did um, cross country and took to that right away. And I just kept on running cross country and, you know, eventually, you know, high school and then universities. So I went to the University of Guelph. And by the time I graduated from the University of Guelph, I was at a fairly decent level of, of running. Um, but I was at a level where I couldn't be a professional runner, but I wanted to see how, how far I could go. So I worked at a bank and within about a year, year and a half, uh, made my first world championship team in 2005. So I made the 5k at Helsinki and I had a sponsor by then and I was getting government funding and I decided to make a full push for the 2008 Olympics. So that's when I just started running full time was in 2005 and yeah, it went, it went a lot longer than I thought. So I didn't make the 2008 Olympics. I, I got injured that year. And then in 2009, moved up to the marathon and that same year went to the world championships in the marathon. And then yeah, went to the Olympics in 2012 and 2016 for the marathon. And I ran 210 three times. So in 2011, 2015, and then after the Olympics in 2016, I ran 210 uh, for, the, for the final time. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. You just set this all up very perfectly <laughs> for us. So um, I was listening to just the best podcast on the, sh- it was the sh- a shakeout podcast episode with um, Kate Van Buskirk and she was interviewing Steve Magnus and Alex Hutchinson. I'm not sure if you've heard that one, but the whole episode was on talent and yes, I heard that one. <laughs> did you hear it? Okay. So for the listeners that haven't heard it, basically Kate Van Buskirk, the, the host had asked each of Steve Magnus, who's American and Alex Hutchinson, who's Canadian to say somebody that 
didn't necessarily show talent like the way that we think, like superstar in middle school and just like accelerated after that. And Alex Hutchinson mentioned you. And I wrote down a little quote. He said, you know, you were an okay mid-level high school runner. You didn't make the top seven at the University of Guelph in your first year. So that's like the traveling squad, right? And you were a good regional level runner by the time you finished university. But then you just kept getting better. Like every year you would just shave five and 10 seconds off of your personal best in the 5k until you're running like low 1320s. And then all of a sudden it's like your world class, you know? And so he just said, you know, you weren't somebody that anyone would have labeled as like super gifted and talented out of the gates, but you just had this incredible work ethic. And maybe part of talent is also the ability to handle high workloads and to be able to string together year after year after year of consistent training without getting injured. Like that could be also be part of talent. So I'm going to turn it over to you and just ask, do you consider yourself talented, <laughs> first of all? And do you have anything to add on to what Alex Hutchinson said? Yeah, that was, it was an interesting podcast. And I like consuming what Steve Magnus and Alex put out. So I was like, oh, I'll listen to this podcast. And I was surprised to hear my name. Um, <laughs> but I, I've, I've known Alex for a long time. We were on a world cross-country team together way back in the day. And we used to race against each other. And it's, it's interesting. I... I did kind of have that chip on my shoulder for a long time that I wasn't talented because through high school, I never made offsa until, you know, my final year, which is like the Ontario track and field championships. Yeah. Like, like you said, in university, I didn't even make the top seven at my university. And so even when I was, even by the time I made worlds in, in 2005, I really like looked around and, uh, you know, when I was there and thinking like, all of these runners, like all these like women and men have tons of talent. And like, I am lucky to get here because I just haven't been injured and I've just been working really hard kind of thing. Um, but then, you know, years would go by. And if I ever, if I ever said that, like that I didn't have talent, you know, people didn't really know where I, like where I came from and that like, I wasn't a superstar early on. And they were like, just like, Oh, get out of here. You know, like you've, you, you've yeah. gone to worlds, you know, you've run 1320 and blah, blah, blah. Like you obviously have talent. And so, um, yeah, yeah, like, uh, yeah, there, there has to be some talent there, you know, to get to the Olympics, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I think the, the way that I systematically just kind of, like you said, like just chopped off anywhere from five to 15 seconds a year off my 5k for, for many years in a row that, yeah, my talent lies in, I guess, just, just building training off of training and year after year and, and then just never settling as well. So, you know, I'll, I'll be happy. I'm always, I'm usually happy with, with what I've just done, mm -hmm. but then I'm also setting the, setting the goal and the bar further and, yeah. doing, you know, setting the bar higher and, and wanting to accomplish more. So there's, I think there's a good mix of like, I don't know. I think a lot of people are really hard on themselves and mm -hmm. they, they don't know when to celebrate, you know, like their accomplishments and then, and then other people are the opposite way. And I, I think I've, I have a good mix where, like I am, like I am, like I'm happy. I'm happy with, mm -hmm. with Western States. Like if I go back, I want to do a lot better. Right. And that's, that's yeah. kind of like exactly how I've looked at like my career the whole time where I'm, I'm rarely disappointed, but yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that again. Like I don't, I, if I go back to Western States, I want to run a lot faster. Right. And it's, so that's the same yeah. thing really as what you did with the 5k and everything else. But you know, what's super interesting is while it is exciting to 
uh, see that superstar kid. And in that same podcast, Alex Hutchinson references Justin Knight as the opposite sort of story to you. Like he showed talent right out of the gates and then continued to develop on that talent uh, as he got better coaching and and all the rest of it uh, and dedicated more time to it. But what I think is super cool is that a story like yours, like watching a story like yours unfold is a lot more exciting to the average person who, and maybe even you can speak to this from your coaching, like people that you coach that they take up the sport and they probably, if they dedicate themselves to putting one foot in front of the other day after day and and year after year, they will continue to see improvements for probably the next decade, no matter when they start. So do you ever use your own story as sort of inspiration for people that you coach? Yeah, sometimes I do. And I think, especially when I was in university and towards the university, doing like end of university, I was doing well um, in, the, in the CIS. A lot of people could look at an officer result Maybe, you know, in grade 11, I was like 165th at officer cross country, right? And, you know, there's 165 people every year that could think, wow, I was faster. You know, I, I placed better than what Reed Coolset did when he was in grade 11. And he went on to win the, you know, Ontario University Championships or something like that, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, versus somebody like Justin Knight, who was always winning OFSA, you can't really relate to that. You know, I've, I've never won OFSA, right? So you, if you're winning the high school championship, the Ontario high school championship, mm-hmm. you know, there's only, there's only a handful of people that can say they've ever done that where there's 165 people that say they can, you know, they finish in the top 165 at, you know, the high school championships. Yeah. So when it was kind of recent history, I mean, this is so long ago, it's like people kind of forget, but when it was recent history and, and I was in university and just after university, I think I did inspire a lot of uh, kind of high school and early university type of runner. And I do with my athletes, you know, I do, I often tell them if, you know, cause they, they maybe they have a bad workout and their times, you know, don't look that good because whether it's hot or they're tired or it's windy or whatnot. And I just tell them if you're, if you're working hard and recovering, you're going to, you're going to make improvements. So it's, it's only when you're working hard and you're not recovering, either you're running too much or too fast, or you just have too much on your plate that, that maybe that hard work doesn't lead to improvement, but otherwise it, it does, right? So, if you really strip things down to the basics, you can kind of like look at look at the positive of, of the hard work you're putting in, and know and just trust that it's going to help you, you know, get get to you know where you want to go, or at least improve. You know, you say this from such a place of personal experience. I'm listening to you and absolutely believe everything you're saying. Like, <laughs> I think you know the athletes that you you're coaching have a real, real benefit of having you as their coach. I'm curious. I hope I say this right. Do you approach coaching somebody that you observe to have natural talent differently than somebody who maybe you can see yourself in like a a workhorse, but maybe doesn't have the natural talent? And do you think that there's maybe some negatives to having natural talent that you have to kind of temper a little bit? Is there any kind of yeah, change in yeah. how you approach those athletes. I, I think there's, I mean, I think there's some negatives to having natural talent. I think, um, you know, when people get success by, if they're able to get a lot of success or they hit their goals by working at 70% of their capacity, they don't know what it's like to have to work to that, that, to that next level. And sometimes you see people with a lot of natural talent, they get to that next level, whether it's youth sport or the NCAA and they crumble. Um, Mm-hmm. because 
they're not used to having to, to work that hard. But I, I would say, I mean, given if you, if, if you could pick natural talent or not, you, I think everyone would pick natural talent and, you know, put in the right, put in the right um, mental framework to, to, to get to capitalize on it. But um, yeah, there's sometimes you see like little examples like that. I think the way I would coach differently is, is um, a lot of it just, just with the way people progress. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people kind of will say people with natural talent just get fit faster. Right. And sometimes it's harder to maintain that fitness for a longer period. So somebody with more natural talent might need a shorter marathon buildup because, mm. you know, they might get into peak fitness after four or five weeks and, or, you know, maybe seven or eight, whatever it is, but you're not going to keep, you know, they're not going to have a 14 week marathon block because that's going to be a long time to, to be running, you know, those speeds and putting like the pounding on your body. Whereas someone who it might take them, you know, two months just to like really kind of get into their own and, and have some good consistent workouts, they'll need a longer training block. So there's little subtleties like that. Um, but, um, most most of it, most of it, I think is 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 still pretty similar. Mm-hmm. But I always have to wonder if you would have the same hunger, right? If you were talented right out of the gates and you're blowing the doors off everyone right from the beginning, would you have the hunger that maybe you had to improve and improve? Because that can be addicting too, right? That whole process of improvement chipping away five and 10 seconds per, per year in the 5k where someone else may like, I wonder if that impacts their desire to work hard. If the results are just coming so easily, why should I work any harder? Like I'm already good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it, it's just a fun thought experiment to go through to, to sort of think about how you might approach to really different athletes, but it's also worth highlighting that there are many ways to the top. Like we're talking about kind of two polar opposites, but there's like loads of gray areas in between. And, and I mean, every athlete is different. And if something's not working, I mean, change it up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you could look at, um, you know, some of the research has been done with the growth mindset. So if you, you know, if you tell someone they're, they're great at math, then when it comes to a hard math question, they get frustrated easier versus someone who you, you know, you've encouraged just to try hard when they get to that yep. tough, tough math question, they, they keep trying, they keep trying and trying, right. They, they have more resolve yeah. and it, it could be similar in running too. Whereas someone who's used to working really hard to get to that next level is willing to work hard to get to that next level. Whereas someone who's like, like I kind of said, like if you have a ton of talent and you get to that next level and you're like, you know, you're just not, you're just not willing to maybe put in that mm-hmm. work. Well, and I think you see that at least in the ultra world in the longevity of a career. I've been in the ultra world now roughly 10 years and so much change has happened in that period of time. You see, you've seen so many people come in and burn super brightly for one or two years and then they're gone. Natural talent that just blows up. Either they, you know, there's so many different reasons for that, but then you also have the people like Killian, for example, who, you know, was born with natural talent um, and has managed to sustain a ridiculously long career at the top. So yeah, like you said, a thought experiment. <laughs> of, I, I, well, I think, I think somebody like Killian is, <laughs> is that example of someone who's got a ton of natural talent and the mental, you know, like the right mental focus and, and, and yeah. knows how to do everything right. Um, mm-hmm. Train properly and, yeah. you know, have the right amount of ego too. Um, mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're not, you can kind of keep yourself in check and, 
and do do things systematically and not not get too excited about right. training way too hard, um, which yeah. which I think tends to do do in a lot of people as, as far as longevity in their careers when they um, most people get caught, a lot of people get caught up in this and I, I did at one point you know you you run more and you get better and you run more and you get better and yeah. It, yeah. you know at some point it doesn't work <laughs> but you know <laughs> yeah. it, it, how stubborn are you are you know are you gonna you know, are you super stubborn where you have to like go back to that or are you going to go back to the drawing board and say okay like i've reached my limit and how much i can train um now i gotta train smarter yeah exactly that's what i was going to ask in your coaching if you ever see it kind of misguided that work ethic be sort of mis misplaced on like i'm just going to run every day kind of hard and and you know then you're sort of pulling that athlete back and saying no there's a time and a place to work hard and it's not on your easy day, for example. So do you ever, do you ever see sort of misguided hard work ethic in your oh, coaching? Oh yeah. Yeah. And that, that happens all the time, especially with, you know, with, with runners, so many are type A and they think the harder you work, the better the results will come. And, and that, and that does all, it almost always works in the short term. Yeah, and then totally. yeah. whether people, you know, figure it out or, or burn out, you know, <laughs> um, that, that's the difference. But when an athlete comes to me, and they haven't been coached, and I realize that they're running hard every day. That's that's the athlete I really like to coach because it's the easiest way to, to yeah. for them to improve, right? You know, they have the work ethic. I don't that I, that you can't really instill in people, right? Like I can motivate people a little bit, but I'm you're not going to get someone who doesn't want to run to run a lot. So they already have the work ethic. They're ready to push hard. You just you almost just as long as they'll listen um, and trust your guidance that's where I've seen the biggest improvements in, in the people I've coached. When someone comes to me and they, and I see what they've done before and it's really smart, um, I'm almost like, Oh my goodness, like, how am oh, I going to make this person faster? You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's a bit more of a challenge, you know, and I'm trying to I have to really dig deep and, and, and figure things out. So, huh. yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of that, uh, you started coaching, uh, I believe Krista Duchesne at the end of 2019. So how in the world did you take an athlete like that and offer her anything that she hasn't probably heard or experienced in the past? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that one came about, well, she was coached by like our old coach. who's no longer coaching and she was going to reach out to me about coaching even before that. So I think she kind of knew like the the general principles that that I was was coaching were going to be that different from what she was sort of used to, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, with, 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 I mean, someone like Chris is super easy to coach because she she can really do anything, right? Like if I if I told her, yeah, you should run two hundred twenty k a week, she she could do it and she would do it. She's just super tough. Wow. For, with Krista, it's it's just a matter of like what she really wants to do and what she's going to do in between marathon builds. So. She hadn't really done much speed work in between, um, and even though that's not her strength, because she really, not to talk bad, Chris, she really has one speed, <laughs> which is which is which is her strength in a way where she just doesn't slow down, right? Like what she can do at ten k, she'll barely slow down for her half marathon, and then when she goes from half to to marathon, she barely slows down again. Like that's her strength, but you know, when, especially with the distances that she's competitive and the, where her goals lie, when you look the other way uh, of how fast she's run with the marathon and, and wants to get down to 10 K then, then you can look at it as a weakness. She doesn't get much faster. Right. right. Um, but it's, yeah, she's a, she's a very interesting athlete to coach in that respect. Wow. Okay. So we, uh, we always like to ask our guests 
who has inspired you on your running journey? Now, I know somebody like yourself has probably had, a, could list a hundred different people, but is there anybody in particular that really kind of set you on a path that you wouldn't have necessarily been on if you hadn't met that person? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So one, one of my earliest inspirations, I think, was a guy I went to my high school before I went there. His name was Jason Bunston. He was an NCAA champion for Arkansas and ran 13:22. And I think one of the reasons why he inspired me is just because when when there's someone who you know who li- grew up in your neighborhood and, and went on to accomplish that, it, it kind of gives you that you know why can't I do it sort of mentality. Although in high school I never thought of you know I'd ever run faster than 13:22, and but. It's, it's still, it was like, it was, it was just, I guess it was just at the time, it was just really cool to see like a local person win, win big races. And there was uh, Graham Hood, um, who was also oh, yeah. uh, NCAA champion and Kevin Sullivan. Like they all graduated from high school before I got there, but they all had really good international careers and they were all, well, Jason was from the same high school as me and Graham was from Burlington, which was beside Hamilton. And then uh, Kevin was from Brantford. So I also didn't realize how lucky I was or how like how good these guys were just compared to everybody else. I kind of thought like maybe every little town had city had like these world beaters. And then, you know, once the internet came around, I, I realized that it was pretty special that, that how good those, how good those guys were. So those guys were, I think they just kind of made me believe like you can grow up in Hamilton and run fast. Mm, that is so cool. Now you mentioned briefly that your very first world championships was in Helsinki in uh, 2005, and you would have gone there for the 5K, right, or the 5,000 meter? Yep. Yeah, I was there every yeah. 5,000. Yep. Yeah. So I have to ask, with the uh, world championships currently going on uh, for the first time ever on North American soil right now in uh, Eugene, Oregon, have you been glued to your screen watching all of uh, what's going down out there, or like how exciting is this for you, or does it does it bring back? I know you made a bid. You you took one final swing back in uh, 2021 to make the Olympic marathon team, right? For Tokyo. So like, does it sort of make you wish you could be there too? Or is it exciting for you to watch? It's, it's just totally, it's just excitement for me. Um, 20 To make the 2020 Olympics. So yeah, I ran the marathon in um, April of 2021 as my last kind of bid for the Olympics. That was always going to be the icing on the cake. So yeah, of course I wish I would have made it and, and, and whatnot, but I got over that race pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. I'm glad I gave it a shot. The year before, before the pandemic, I thought I had a pretty good shot at making the team. Um, and then a couple of younger guys got a lot faster and made the the standard, like the, the time to beat much quicker, um, over a minute, a minute, 15 seconds faster than what I thought I was going to have to do mm-hmm. in the spring of 2020. So I wasn't getting any younger. The times were getting faster. Um, <laughs> I found out about the race, you know, seven, I think seven weeks before I did it. So yeah, there, there, there really wasn't bitterness and I'm, I'm super excited to be watching, um, worlds. I have everything, like all the, all the events I want to watch and just cheering on yeah. the team Canada and, and other competitors that I know. And I know less and less, um, as I kind of get away from, you know, when I was running world champs and, uh, the Olympics, but still, still have connection to some people. But speaking of that, I, the world championships in, were in Edmonton in 2001 and I made sure 
I went and watched because I figured that was going to be the only time I was ever going to see the world championships. So oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, I thought it was the first time on North American soil. I don't know where I got that oh, from. First time in this, the first time in the U S in the U S. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well that, it, I mean that men's marathon. So at the time of this recording, the men's marathon was yesterday. So this is all very, very fresh, but how excited were you to watch that men's marathon team? They absolutely rocked it. But can we talk about Cam Levin's performance for a second? He shattered his own Canadian record by over two minutes, finished fourth, which is the top overall placing for a Canadian male marathoner ever, I think. Yeah. And um, just absolutely like ran the race of his life. What did you, what do you think when you watch something like that? Oh yeah. I mean, that was amazing to watch. Um, I'm so happy for Cam. When back in 2012, uh, that's when I really got to know Cam at the Olympics. He was running the 5k and 10k. I was running the marathon and just talking about training and stuff. I realized that he was already trained, like running more than I was. And <laughs> Myself, Eric Gillis, and Dylan knew that he was going to be a good marathoner. Uh, it was just a matter of time. Uh, and then he didn't move up to the marathon until 2018 and, and ran the Canadian record right off the bat, 209, yeah. right, 209 20-something. And, and I wasn't surprised at all, really. With Given his how good his 10K time was and his capacity to handle high volumes of training and just, just how tough he is, mm. And, and just just knowing like the workouts that I could do and seeing the workouts he does, I, I just he's on a different planet, right? Um, right. And I, and I kind of like I you know I'd run two ten, but I was trying to always run two oh nine. And when he hit two oh nine, I'm like, yeah, that's a great spot for him to to start off with. And I thought I thought he could probably run two oh seven before the the super shoes came onto the scene. And um, mm-hmm. you know he's had some he's kind of had some ups and downs and. His race to make the Olympics last, I think, I guess it was, in, it might have been in April and maybe even in May. It was, May, I think. It was pouring rain and he, yeah. he was all by himself at the end and he still got the job done. That was another sign of like, okay, there's, there's still a big performance. It didn't happen at the Olympics. Maybe it was too, too, too quick of a turnaround from qualifying or, or whatnot, or yeah. maybe the heat just really got to him in Tokyo. But his training has just looked so uh, impressive lately that, a 207 does not surprise does not surprise me from him finishing fourth i i would say like is i mean one spot from a medal is maybe i'm not sure if i would have predicted that um but uh so that was that was really cool to see him just like just still in that main like lead pack and still kind of fighting for a medal in, yeah. in the late stages and yeah and and rory um and ben still finishing I think uh, Rory was low twenties and Ben was twenty eighth and running two ten and two eleven. Tristan Woodfine and Trevor Hoffbauer and Justin Kent, like the the, the depth is there and the, the, on the women's side. So it's 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 a really good time to be a, a fan of um, mm-hmm. Canadian marathoning, and it's also a good time to not have to worry about um, being that odd odd man out on a on a team because um, now it's so competitive that. Like Tristan Woodfine hit the standard last year for the Olympics and didn't make it, and that's something right. that that um, have we ever had that um, <laughs> where we have more than three people that yeah, have it's made it's very rare in Canada in any event that there's more than yeah. three people with the standard. So yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad I kind of got my I had my heyday day before Cam Levins came around with that marathon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but on that note, I mean. 
we inspire the next generation. And in marathoning, that's like a short little, it's like a decade, right? So, so you're like the decade before the Cam Levins and the, the Rory and the Tristan and, and all of them. Right. And so uh, what role do you think, I mean, this is, t- it's, it's uncomfortable to toot your own horn, but you had to have given them some inspiration to think that, Hey, maybe if Ree can do it, maybe I can do it too. And, and this like, are you no, sort of like no proud <laughs> papa? Yeah. The guy with no talent. <laughs> The guy with no talent can do it, then surely I can do it with yes. a bit of talent. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I do, you know what, I, I was only getting into running probably right when you came on the scene uh, in 2012 uh, to run the, the London Olympics. Uh, so I remember you and... Eric and and Dylan like we're always in the running magazines and stuff like that and I can remember my brother Kevin saying that he knew the three of you personally and I thought whoa like that is so super cool that you know he knows these famous people that are that are on the magazine covers but um you know it honestly like I really think that when you look ahead and you see real models of people doing the thing that you want to do it's incredibly powerful just as you've spoken about with you know, Kevin Sullivan and, and all of those guys that grew up in your area uh, to go on to compete at, on the world stage. So uh, I think you can take a little bit of the credit for what we're seeing now in terms of the depth of, of male Canadian marathoners. So way to go. Ah, thanks. Yeah, I, I guess if anything, um, I remember when we did qualify in 2012, we were the first Canadian marathoners to have qualified for the Olympics, I think since 2000. So the 2004, 2008 Olympics didn't have any male or female marathoners. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of talk that, that now that people were seeing athletes qualify, that that's going to give them hope to, to, you know, to step up their game. And, um, it was kind of anticipated by 2016 that we would have been old and got the boot, but, um, luckily, you know, Eric and I still made it. Eric finished 10th at the Olympics and, Yeah. And then by the time 2021 rolled around, it was, yeah, it was time for the next generation. Yeah. So Reed, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We are very, very proud uh, to have had a Canadian uh, do so well at Western States, as well as, you know, your entire road and track career at the Olympics. So yeah, great job. And I'm really excited to see what uh, your future holds in the ultra scene. Great. Thanks a lot. I had a fun conversation and yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what comes next.